Shabbat Shalom. We, uh, last week, we ended off, let's see here. Last week, we ended off chapter 2, verse 17, and I believe this is our fourth week uh, going strong, and uh, we're not even to chapter 3 yet, if that tells you anything. Um, But last week, in verse 17, we ended off where King Ahasuerus, it's, it's talking about how much he loves Esther, how much he loves her, the grace and the loving kindness that was bestowed upon her, and that ultimately what ended up happening, because she pleased the king, because the king loved her, he set the royal crown upon her head and uh, replaced Vashti. Let's continue. So we're going to pick up there. So looking at last week that, okay, we finally come to the point where Esther, she's essentially, if you will, been anointed in a special way because the crown has been put on her head. She's been drawn to the king and she is made queen instead of Vashti. And then as we come to verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, this is what it says. Then the king made a great feast. Now that word feast, it's, it's actually translated multiple ways in, in the book of Esther. Um, later on, as we continue in the book, you're actually going to see this word as banquet. Now in the Hebrew, it's not the chag, it's not moed. It's mishteh. Mishteh in the Hebrew. And how we see it translated later on, it's going to be banquet. I don't have a problem with the translation. It doesn't bother me. Um, but just so you know that uh, this is, we're going to see this very same word, but it's going to say banquet. So here's what we read. Then the king made a great feast or banquet, the banquet of Esther for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday. Thank you, Miss Patrice, in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So this celebration that is happening. Don't you feel the weight of this? The celebration that's actually happening here, this is all in honor of Queen Esther. It's all for her. And how marvelous is that when Esther is in fact a picture of the church, a picture of the elect of God, a picture of Israel, and what Israel has to look forward to. That everything that's going to happen at the end is going to be to honor Israel. That is awesome. Very, very weighty. Moving to verse 19, we read the following. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther, listen to these words, Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Now, this is so fascinating to me to see how Esther responds to Mordecai. Notice what kind of person Esther is. She's a very, very wise woman. She is a woman that is willing to heed wise counsel. Again, this is another significant picture for us and how we are supposed to behave. We should be emulating what we see in her character. Her character, her nature, is to submit. Submit to wise counsel. Listen to what Proverbs 1.5 says. A wise man will hear and increase learning. There's a wise woman, wise man, 
will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. This is exactly what we see happening. Mordecai is offering wisdom, is offering understanding, and how is Esther responding? She's attaining to it. She's receiving it. Very, very powerful. Going ahead to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I love this translation of the New King James. You hate correction? You're stupid. This is what it says. So next time, the Lord is trying to speak to you, and he's trying to counsel you, and you're turning away. I want you to imagine your alternate self standing next to you with a shirt on that says, I'm with stupid. And if you had to walk around with someone like that, or listen, husbands, let's just say we had to give your wife the shirt that said, I'm with stupid. And we made you go out to all these public places with that on. It's humiliating, right? It would be humiliating. I want you to understand something. The Bible is warning us. When we walk like that, when we refuse the instructions of the Lord, we are being humiliated. We just don't know it. We're deceived. So remember this. He who hates correction is stupid. Or you could say in the, more in the Hebrew, brutish. We don't want to be like that. We want to be like Esther. We want to receive the correction of the Lord. Moving back a couple of chapters, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. This is so frightening to me. If you refuse wisdom, the wise counsel of the Lord, it tells you what path you are on. You are on the path of destruction. You have come off the path of life and you have chosen to walk on the path of destruction. This should scare you. This is a scary scenario. You do not want to be on this path. You want to be on the path of life. Esther was on the path of life. I know she's on the path of life because I see how she responds to wise counsel. And let me tell you something about Esther. When I see people on the path If I didn't know the rest of the story of Esther, I would already tell you. I already know because of how she responds to Mordecai, I already know how it's going to end. She is destined for greatness. Awesome greatness. Why? Because I know the way she responded to Mordecai, she's on the path of life. And so I want you to think about something. When you choose to heed the counsel of the living God, the God of Israel, know you're on the path of life, and know this. It doesn't matter how the world views you. It doesn't matter how they see you, how your employer see you, how your friends see you, how your family sees you. I promise you, you are destined for greatness. That's your destiny. Your destiny is going to be where a celebration is made in your honor at the end of the age. We need these things. We need to know what Esther knew. We need to behave like Esther behaved, especially in these days that we're living in. Ecclesiastes 12, 11 imparts this wisdom. The words of the wise are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? A goad is an instrument, it's a farming instrument, that keeps the livestock in line. It makes the livestock, these dumb, stupid animals, with no brains, and makes them go to where they need to be. It keeps them in, in safety. It brings them into the pen. 
So at the end of the day, I'm insured a nice juicy steak. I'm kidding. The point being is, as look at what this said, the words of the wise, wise counsel, the instruction of the Lord, it keeps us in line. It will keep us from harm. It will bring us to where we are supposed to be, where our master knows it's safe. Moving on. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Proverbs 25, verse 11. Look at one more. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. I want you to consider this. An earring of gold being placed upon the ear. What does an earring of gold do to the ear? It beautifies it. It complements it. In the very same way, the words of Mordecai, words of gold, had come to Esther's ear. And she applied it and it complemented her ear because it was to an obedient ear. It beautifies it. That's its intent. And we need to operate in the very same way. Now, moving on in our story, going to verse 21, we read the following. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerosh. Now, it's interesting, we're not given any details whatsoever in what transpires here. Why are they angry? Well, we're not told here at this moment. But there is an idea and a hypothesis that we could look at. It is interesting, this is only recorded after the fact, almost immediately after the fact Vashti is removed. Isn't that interesting? This may suggest here that these two eunuchs, they are loyal to Vashti. This is what this is suggesting, that these two eunuchs are loyal to Vashti, and when the king took her and replaced her, and rose up, Esther, they're livid. They're furious. And they're so furious, what's it say? They want to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They want to kill him. This is an assassination. Moving on to verse 22. So the matter became known to Mordechai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordechai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we find, basically, we look at this, there's a plot to assassinate the king. The plot gets foiled. When Mordecai learns of the plot, he goes therein, and he tells Esther, who in fact tells the king. And ultimately, what happens here? The king is saved. The king is preserved. Now, pay attention here, because this is very important. Mordecai being in the right place at the right time, this was ordained by God. This is ordination. He was put there at the right place at the right time for what? One specific purpose. One purpose. What was the purpose? To redeem, to save Israel. And so, whether Mordecai understood the implications of what he was experiencing at that time, of just walking in the honor of the Lord, walking honorably with integrity. Whether he understood that or not, the Lord's better plan, the Lord's bigger plan, was to redeem and to save Israel. Kind of on a a practical level for us today, 
How many of you complain about situations you're in that you just don't even realize the hand of the living God wants you there for a reason, but you're not recognizing it? You want to move on. You want to go somewhere else, and yet the Lord is calling you to that place at that time. We need to open up. We need to start thinking about these things, that maybe the Lord has you wherever you're at, whether it be a job Whatever the case may be, whether you're going out to eat, whatever the case may be, he has you there for a reason. Look around. Open your eyes. Who are you supposed to share Yeshua with? Right? Because the big plan is salvation. And we're supposed to be instruments of this. Now, as we continue, we're going to break into chapter 3 here. We're going to see a new character comes onto the scene. The character, Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, or as I'll identify as Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set a seat above all the princes who were with him. There is so much to discuss regarding this man, Haman. The first thing I want to address here is the history. You need to know there's a lot of family history here, if you will, Ironically, between Mordecai and Haman. There's family history here between Esther and Haman. We're told here in verse, uh, verse 1, let me highlight this. We're told that Haman is actually the son of Hamadatha or Hamadatha the Agagite. You remember who Agag is? This is this irony would have it, Dan actually covered a portion, one of his parts of his Torah portion today was actually for Samuel. 15. Well, you remember who Agag? Agag's mentioned in that. You remember who he is? He's the king of the Amalekites, all right? He's the king of the Amalekites, and he's the very one that Sam, or Saul went to war with. So Saul and, and, and Agag battled it out. Now, consider this. What tribe was Saul from? He was from Benjamin. Benjamin. Where's Mordecai from? He's from the tribe of of Benjamin, thus so is Esther as well, since they are family. And so it just shows you that there's some serious history between these two families. In fact, there's such history, it goes all the way back to the Exodus. Because you can trace the Amalekites all the way back to Exodus 17. You know the story, then we're coming up to it soon. Um, God takes people out of Egypt, takes Israel out of Egypt, leads them through the Red Sea, They're just fresh into the wilderness. And what happens to Israel? They get attacked. The Amalekites, King Amalek goes after them and attacks the Israelites. And this is that war, if you remember, where Aaron and Hur and Moses, all three of them, they go up to the hill, and we're told Aaron and Hur were there to literally hold up the hands of Moses. Because as long as they held his hands up, Israel prevailed. And when his hands went down, Amalek would prevail. And so you would find this just amazing battle taking place, this amazing history. But there's something I'm getting at here. There's something interesting that was recorded back in Exodus 17 that is germane to our discussion today. And that is this. In Exodus 17, verse 14, we read the following. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Yehoshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moving on to verse 15. And Moshe built an altar and called its name, 
The Lord is my banner. This is interesting with this battle of Amalek and and the defeat of that. Now they're going to call this, they literally built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner, Yehovah Nissi, or Yahweh Nissi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek, what? From generation to generation. Isn't it interesting? Hundreds of years before Esther and Mordecai, ever ever come into play with Haman, that we see the prophecy, generation after generation, there will be war. And here as we come to Esther, now we find the war ensues once again. Now, I want to take you back to verse 1 here before we move on. There's something else that is worth pointing out, something that resonates on a much deeper spiritual level. And that is this. In verse 1, we read the following. In these, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, and advanced him, listen to these words, advanced Haman and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. This is something you need to appreciate, the weight of this. Because if you remember, going back to chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, he had seven princes. Princes that were close to him. So close, it says they were the closest to him. They had special access to the king. And now we read about a character who's even set higher than these seven princes. He essentially was advanced to the highest position in all the kingdom with the exception of the throne itself. Now this is where things get really interesting because when you look at the the, the relationship that existed between King Ahasuerus and, and, and Haman, you cannot deny it. It cannot be denied. It is a mere reflection of the relationship that existed between Satan, the adversary, and the King of Glory, the creator of heaven and earth. Let me take this and, uh, and, and show evidence to this and uh, cast a little light to show who Haman really represents. Moving to Ezekiel 28, we read the following. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Understand, this is just a metaphorical response. This is a metaphor for Satan. And this is going to be proven as we continue. The topic here is the enemy, the devil. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Your workmanship of your timbrels, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. This one is special. This creation of the Lord was special. It was exalted. There was preparations for this creation. Moving on to verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. It's an amazing, amazing insight into the adversary, into the devil, and what he used to be. You know, all the terminology that's being used here, if you read the book of Enoch, boy, it really comes home. 
you realize when it talks about you are on the mountain of God and you were covered all these stones, it is an actual, it is, it is terminology stating you were at the throne of the living God. Let me show you this and how close this special one, this creation was to the Lord. When we look at the throne of God, and this is an image, this is an image of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the actual shadow, the representation of the throne, the copy of the heavenly. This is the throne of God. This is actually just the box here. This is what we call the Ark of God. This, the top portion, is called the mercy seat. It is the throne of God. And there you have the two covering cherubim. We were told in this passage that Hasatan, the devil, was one of the cherubim, one of the covering cherubim. You do not get closer to the Lord than that. Just doesn't happen. So my point is this. When we read about in chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Understand, Haman is the perfect picture of our adversary. He is the perfect picture of the devil. The deeper we get into the story, the more you're going to see this. Moving on to verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. It's so interesting. Everyone, this is what the text said, everyone's willing to pay homage to Haman except for one, Mordecai, who is actually in this book identified, he's actually called Mordecai the Jew. He refused to bow. Now this act doesn't go unnoticed. Look at what verse 3 says. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Verse 4. Now it happened when they spoke to him daily. You don't want to blow past this. You want to appreciate the weight of the context of what's actually happening? Pay attention to what was just said. Now it happened when they spoke to him daily. Day after day after day, they put the heat on him to bow, to worship Haman. Day after, you want to talk about peer pressure. How many of you are going to be able to withstand the peer pressure that is going to come to get you to worship the beast, to get you to worship the enemy of the Lord? Mordecai experiences day after day, daily, they spoke to him. And what's it say? And he would not listen to them. That they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Now listen. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So? What's that got to do with anything? I mean, it's amazing. It says, Mordecai's words would stand. They wanted to know if those words were stand. So they take these words back because Mordecai told them there was a Jew. What's that matter? Is he Italian, Norwegian, Chinese, or a Jew? What's it really matter? I'll tell you, it matters everything. It has everything to do with everything. This is actually telling us, if we read this and you pay attention, the fact that Mordecai went back and said, no, I'm a Jew, it tells us why he would not bow to Haman. This is telling us why. What do we know about the Jews? What do we know that they were given? What do we know that they were called to? The Jewish people 
were called to be separate. And they were given a special set of instructions. They were to be governed by a unique set of laws that none of the rest of the world had, but only the Jewish people. In Exodus 20, verse 1, this is what we read. And God spoke all these words saying, this is the Ten Commandments. We read this every Shabbat. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Shall not do it. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I want you to understand something. This is not just a matter of graven images. This includes man himself. Man is not to be worshipped. Man is not to receive the worship that is only due to the God of Israel. It is forbidden to a Jew. It's forbidden. You want to elevate your status to God? It is going to come at a price. Let me give you a wonderful example. In Acts 12, verse 21, we read the following. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Yeah, that works out pretty good. You want to step in God's shoes? You think you're going to receive worship? You want worship? This is how it's going to end. You're going to be destroyed. The point being here is man is not to receive worship. He is not to give it to another man. It belongs exclusively to the God of Israel. So understand something. What Haman was looking for from Mordecai was much more than simply displaying an act of respect or an act of honor, Haman was asking for more than that. He was asking for something that Mordecai the Jew couldn't give because he was a Jew. And Jews were given a special set of laws which prohibit them from taking part in this particular behavior, this particular act. So, how does Haman respond to this? How do you respond to Mordecai's refusal to bow and pay homage to him? Well, we go back to verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. Isn't that interesting? When Haman saw that he wasn't going to receive worship from Mordecai, he becomes enraged, filled with wrath. Where have we heard that before? Oh yeah, in the book of Revelation. And wouldn't you know it, it is in the exact same context. Let me take you there. Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. I have to stop here. You have to understand the premise of what's to unfold in the story of Esther. Because Haman's about to go to war with the rest of the Jewish offspring. This is not just Mordecai. We're going to find as the story unfolds, it's going to be the rest of the offspring. This is amazing. And so the dragon is enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of the offspring. What enraged him? Why is he enraged with the woman? They wouldn't worship him. And proof of this is, is what is the criteria that makes him mad? It's very Jewish. 
They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Yeshua HaMashiach, the king of the Jews. Amazing. Dragon is filled with rage exactly how Haman is filled with rage against Mordecai. Haman wants the worship. He wants the worship just as Satan wants the worship. Truly, Haman is representative of the evil one. Now, having said that, I do want to point out that there is another parallel that exists in the New Testament regarding this interaction between Haman and Mordecai. But instead of the characters being Haman and Mordecai, the characters are Yeshua and Satan. Let me show this to you. As we come to the fourth chapter of Matthew, you remember Yeshua, he's baptized. He gets anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh. And the Ruach HaKodesh leads him out to the wilderness because he's to be tempted by the enemy. And there's an interesting discourse that takes place. There's an interesting exchange of words. And I want to bring this to your attention. We go to Matthew 4, verse 4, verse 8, I'm sorry. Again, the devil took Yeshua up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What does Satan want? He wants worship. The very thing Haman was asking Mordecai to do, we find Satan asking Yeshua to do in the wilderness. All these things I will do if you fall down and worship me. You cannot make this stuff up. And what's interesting here, I could take it a step further, just to put it further into context of actually how this parallels what's going on with Haman and Mordecai. This very passage that we're reading here, especially verse 9 where it says, all these things I will give to you. If you read Luke's version of the very same passage, Luke does something interesting. He adds one little tidbit that, Yeshua said, or that Satan says, something important, and it gives us perspective on Haman. Satan says that all these things I will give you, and then he goes on to say in Luke's version, for they have been given to me. I want you to think about something. Where did Haman get his power? He got his power and authority from the king. Think about that. So how does Yeshua hold up to this test? We go on in verse 10. Then Yeshua said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Interesting. Yeshua the Jew responds the very same way that Mordecai the Jew responded. Mordecai responded this way because he was a Jew. His criteria, his law was Torah. Very, very powerful. And Yeshua does the same thing. He comes out and he quotes Torah to the enemy. Cannot be done. And he did not bow, as we know. Now going back to verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai, Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. See, this goes back to what I told you and showed you in Revelation 12. He went to make war with the rest of the offspring. This is what Haman wants to do. It's not just about Mordecai. It's the whole enchilada. It's all of Israel. So he sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Interesting 
how it phrases this. And this is how it's phrased in the Hebrew. The Jewish people are identified as the people of Mordecai. Interesting to bring up, because we'll come back to that later on as we start to develop and see who this character Mordecai is representative. Moving on to verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, now ironically, today is the first day of the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. It's the first month in the Jewish calendar. In the first month, which is the, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, in the plural it would be purim, but they cast pur, that is, the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar, moving to verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Will the spiritual depths of this thing never end? I can't go a verse without tripping over the deepness, the incredible aspects that's pouring off the pages. Do you see what it just said? He makes note that they've been scattered and dispersed among all the provinces of the kingdom. What do we know about the Jewish people today? They've been dispersed to the four corners of the earth. It's something the prophets foretold would happen. Read Isaiah. Read Ezekiel 37. Isaiah 11. Read the Torah. Read Matthew 24. All of these passages talk about Israel being dispersed to the four corners of the earth. And yet, I'm reading it right here in this story. And we continue. In all the provinces of your kingdom, listen to this. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. Yes, it is true. The laws of the Jewish people are not like that of the world's. Their laws are special. Their laws are different. And give you a beautiful articulation of this. Found in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgment just as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses talking to Israel. That you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Verse 6. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding. That's what Torah is. That's what these commandments that the Lord God had given to the Jewish people, given to Israel. It is wisdom and it is understanding. In the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 7. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? You know what? Haman's right. This one rare occasion, Haman is right. The Jewish people do have laws that are different. And they're not like any other laws on the earth. And no, their laws do not allow them to compromise. Ever. They compromise. It is death. There are provisions within Torah. There are warnings in the prophets. You cannot compromise what I have instructed you. Cannot do it. Mordecai the Jew knew that. He could not compromise. So, Haman's answer to this apparent conundrum, interestingly enough, 
It's the very same answer that Satan has in the book of Revelation. Look at what Haman suggests to be done. Moving to Esther chapter 3, verse 9, we read, If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring. Understand what's actually being said here. When the king takes the signet ring, the signet ring is the very symbol of authority. That's what it is. It's the symbol of authority. Now look at what he does. The king took his signet ring from his hand. He gives it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Isn't that interesting? Where have we heard of this type of scenario unfolding in Scripture? Have we heard of this? Absolutely. As we go to Revelation 13, verse 1, we read, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now pay close attention as we drop down to verse 7 to what is said. That is the mere replica of what we just read with what Ahasuerus does with Haman. In verse 7, And it was granted, granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is exactly what we see happening with Haman and King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is giving Haman the power, just as we see the Lord has allowed the enemy of the Jews to go and attack the elect of God. This story, the story of Esther, it is a prophetic template of how the whole thing is going to unfold. It's one of the most marvelous stories in Scripture to where you see from the beginning to the end of how the story goes, Esther has it. Esther covers it. It's unbelievable. It's exactly why you want to pay very, very close attention to this story. It's worth studying. Now moving on in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. Well, what just happened? I'll tell you what happened. The declaration to destroy the Jewish people was made. It was made and it was put into law. And this law went to every single province, to all the various people throughout the land. You think about it, Haman's wrath, this is what happened. Haman's wrath was given the green light. This is scary stuff. You read stuff like this. This is scary stuff because there was nowhere to hide. Nowhere. Nowhere to hide. One could look at this, step back, 
And as Jeremiah 30 talks about, you could look at this and say, man, this truly was a time of Jacob's trouble, which is another way just to say tribulation. Moving on to verse 14, or 13 in Esther. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. In one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions, verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued, so uh, issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. When you read this very carefully, what is actually happening here, if you noticed, there is a call, literally, for all the people in every province to prepare to destroy the Jewish people. There's a call, a unanimous call amongst everyone, no one excluded, everyone to come and destroy the Jewish people. And when you read this, you are immediately drawn to what the prophets foretold, what the prophets said would happen in regard to the Jewish people in the last days. Let me take you to Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is the end of days. This is, this is leading up to the coming of the Mashiach. This is a powerful prophecy, one of the most predominant prophecies that exist today. What would he do? He said, I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. All the enemies are being called from the four corners of the earth to battle against Jerusalem. This city shall be taken. The house is rifled and the women ravaged. Listen to this. Half of the city shall go into captivity. Are you paying attention to the news? Because something that has never been talked about in the history of Israel is now being talked about on the news. It's being pushed by the UN and other countries such as the United States. They are pushing to divide Jerusalem. You are living in prophecy right now. This is scary stuff. Half the city, it says, will go into captivity. Quite literally, half of the city. They're talking about it on the news. Turn your news on, and you're going to hear more and more about it as things go on. Let me add to this. Let me tell you how this may just play out with Netanyahu getting reelected. Here's what's going to happen. Israel is going to defend itself. But guess what? There's a threat. And who's the threat? You can't make this up. Persia is the main threat. And this is very possible how this unfolds. Is Israel is going to protect itself, but in the eyes of the world, it's going to see as overreaching, acting out of character, too much to handle, and the UN is going to come in, and the Security Council is going to come in, and they're going to force the divide of Jerusalem. It's coming. And I'm going to tell you something. When you see this happen, you better look up. Because if you read the rest of this prophecy, the Lord is going to come down and he is going to defend his people. 
prophecy. Amazing that we are living at the very end of the age. We know it. This is a prophecy of finality. Cannot make it up. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. This tells me there will be a Jewish remnant and they will not be cut off from the city. They're going to be there. The Lord will ensure it. And just like the persecution that happened in the first century, remember when all the elect were scattered, the Lord preserved who? He preserved the apostles in Jerusalem. This is the Bible blows your mind when you actually are in the midst of it and living out prophecy. I still can't get my mind wrapped around it. Man, if you're an atheist, and I was, I was witnessing to an atheist, and I brought him to this passage, and he didn't even blink. He did not even blink. He, could, he was trying to process what I was telling him as I was showing him news clips on literally what Zechariah had prophesied. Powerful, powerful stuff. Now you think about this, why, and as this prophecy says, why is the Lord gathering all the nations to battle against his holy city, against Jerusalem? Well, the prophet Joel tells us, very important to pick up on this. Joel 1, For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captivities of Yehuda and Jerusalem, What happened in 1948? Quite literally, the Lord fulfilled. This prophecy of Joel was fulfilled. He brought back the captivities. There is a nation, there is a state of Israel today. They're inhabiting the land. So he brings them back. 1940, brings them back. And actually, they, they were inhabiting the land before it was officially made a state. But this prophecy, we've lived in the days when this prophecy is fulfilled. But now listen to why the nations have been gathered against Jerusalem. Verse 2, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them. There on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. The reason he is bringing the nations to gather against Jerusalem is to destroy them. It's not going to be pretty. That's the point. He wants to enter into judgment with his enemies. What's, now, what's the point? How does this apply to our story in Esther in every way? This, this decree that goes out from Haman to destroy all the Jewish people, the king allowed it, just as we're going to see Yeshua is going to allow it in these days for a reason, because he's calling the enemies to be destroyed. Very, very powerful. Powerful. 